0: well good morning hey we'd like to welcome back our youth and youth leaders from their annual beach trip down in delaware i heard it was a hot one and uh, we're always hearing good things about our youth ministry and the investment that is being made in our young people's lives lifelong relationships that are occurring i know my three daughters especially benefited from that with ben and sue so much to be thankful for again welcome back Okay, so we return again this morning to our summer series on the church. And you know that our love for the church stands pretty close to our love for our Savior because He died for it. He died for the church. This is the last message in the series uh, the church's master, the church's makeup, mission, management. Message, method, ministry, mistake, mysticism, and now number ten, we have the church's mansions, taken from a translation of John fourteen two, uh, in which it says, "In my Father's house are many mansions." If you want to make your way onto John, on over to John fourteen, we'll be there in a little bit. I'll need your patience, but we'll be there uh, in a little bit. John chapter fourteen, and this morning's subject is that of heaven. Heaven, as we seek to answer two. Important questions that I think every pastor likely has on their top 10 asked list, most popular asked list. First, what happens to us when we die? What happens to us after we die? No one's denying that death will come. Uh, We've all lost loved ones. People die every day, young and old. But there is sort of an ABC mentality, anything but Christian kind of attempt out there to answer this question, and so we want to be biblically accurate. We want to answer this question in a biblical manner, and so we'll see how this gets answered here more on, on this in a moment. The second question we want to answer, also found in your bulletins, is what will heaven be like for us? What will heaven be like for us? Are we quarantined to a cloud with a harp in our hands? Have you seen some of those cartoons? Uh, Or are we surrounded by uh, precious moments, figurines of chubby baby angels for all eternity? Sounds worse than a Hallmark movie marathon. But uh, what will heaven be like for us? We'll do our best to answer this question as well from those encouraging words in John 14, which begin, do not let your heart be troubled. Now, full disclosure, I had asked Sonny to read for us from 2 Corinthians earlier because I wanted to remind us of the the big picture as it relates to the afterlife. To be clear, what he read included these words in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, help me here, absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? For true believers, in an instant, a divine miracle takes place at the moment of our death that puts us in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Far better to be with the Lord. And this is what scripture promises. Christians who uh, are in the family of God will go from an existence and presence in this life instantly into an existence and presence with the Lord. Your soul in the glory of eternal heaven in the presence of our risen Savior. And this is why the first question in your bulletin reads this way. What happens to us, to us, after we die? We're talking about the church here in this series. Us, church-aged Christians. What happens to us after we die? What happens to those Christ died for? What happens to those that Christ purchased with his blood, redeemed upon the cross, after they, after we die? What happens to us after we die. You know, they say there's um, the only certainty in life is death and taxes. You live your whole life, you try to make the best of it, you pay your taxes, and then you die. Now, what I want to share with you is another certainty, another certainty, and it's concerning the certainty of the afterlife as God reveals it to us. You know, with good reason, the Apostle Paul declared, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And as believers, we shouldn't fear death. Oh, we could talk about dying. There might be some fear in dying. Dying can be quite painful, depending on how you die. But death? No, we shouldn't fear death as Christians. We know that when we close our eyes, when I close my eyes in death, my soul's going to be in the immediate presence of Christ, and I long for that. I long for that day. One of the Puritans once wrote, Even an old, tired horse quickens his pace when he reaches the reins of his own home. So as we grow older, we ought to quicken our pace and long to be with Jesus forever. And this morning, I want to unpack this a bit from John 14. But again, before I do... Uh, I want to put this in perspective. And so I'd like to highlight, do something a little different here. I'd like to highlight some of what others are saying about heaven, about what happens when a person dies. Now, for them, if you're looking at your bulletin already, you'll see these are uh, afterlife theories, okay? Because they don't possess absolute truth. They don't have the word of God. They don't see the Bible, God's word, as authoritative. They don't see it as sufficient for their lives. In fact, they'd much rather go elsewhere. The trouble is, not all roads lead to heaven. Not all roads lead to heaven. They can't all be the same, as the basic tenets of Christianity make this impossible. And this is what I wrote. I dedicated a whole chapter to this subject in my book, Five Half-Truths, where I spend that chapter debunking the myth that all religions are the same. Listen, the only way that you can reconcile Christianity with the religions of the world on really any major subject is to do so at the cost of truth, at the cost of truth. Your Bible would have to be some kind of perforated version where you punch out the verses that you don't agree with, the verses you don't like. And as it relates to heaven, the moment we take our final breath in this life, we will either be proven wise in the word or foolish in the world. Okay, so let's get right to it under the category of Uh, ABC, as I said before, anything but Christian, We, we have number one here. We have the result of reincarnation, the result of reincarnation. You know, there are three, at least three, that I have here, major belief systems out there that believe death results in reincarnation. When you die, you start all over again in a different body or form is what they mean here. And the first example I have is Hinduism. Hinduism. Hinduism believes in reincarnation based on karma. Now, you know karma, right? When the person who passed you on the road gets stuck at the next light, that's what we call karma. When the guy hits a home run and he does some incredible, crazy celebration, and then he's at the plate next time and he gets hit with a pitch we see that as karma. In Hinduism, there are three types of karma. That of past lives, that of this present life, and that of the lives not yet lived. And they believe that the karma of life will determine the next life. Karma, not God. And although they state that there is a divine being that watches over these cycles of reincarnation, it's a cycle of rebirth based upon their works. What they've done determines where they go. That's the the result that is there. And so Hindus believe that the soul can live millions of lives. So bad karma can result in making you a slug in the next life. I'm making this up. Good karma, a higher being with the overarching goal being to escape the cycle known as samsara and achieve a state, mwaksha, where one is reabsorbed into a universal spirit, much like uh, placing a drop of water in the ocean. Buddhism, the second one here, also believes in a form of reincarnation, and it is based upon their elimination of desire. Their elimination of desire, like Hindus, Buddhists believe karma determines the next life. Again, this is the result of their reincarnation. As a person learns to desire nothing, they, desire, they achieve a state of nirvana. Nirvana, that's when the self reverts back to a no-self. And the way to destroy these desires, they state, the works involved all rely upon the following, what they call the middle way which can take multiple lifetimes to achieve. The third example here is Scientology, which also believes in a a form of reincarnation. Although they would would never call it that. They instead focus on the strengthening of the soul over many lifetimes. So Scientologists uh, have a name for the soul. They call the soul a Thetan. Sounds like a marvel word, Thetan. Thetans who reach a, a higher level of ethical and moral standards are more creative, they're said to possess greater control over their environment, and are less susceptible to disease. In each of these instances, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Scientology, reincarnation is their result. It's their uh, karma, cause, and effect. Their answer to the afterlife, albeit a, a fictional one at best, whatever they dream it to be. And you can see that it's a works-based solution. It's based upon a person's perceived effort. And you can see that for the most part, it's godless. It's certainly ABC, anything but Christian. Which brings us to the second example of how people describe the afterlife. Number two here, the reward of religion. The reward of religion. When we use the word religion, we are referring to a man-made system of belief. Religion's man-made. As opposed to Christianity, which is not as it's predicated upon Christ. Religion is about what a human being has to do to be right with God. Christianity is about what God has already done to provide us the opportunity to be right with him. So we are, we are calling people to be reconciled to God through the substitutionary work of Christ, trusting in a divine work, not a man-made one, that then promises rewards full of, honestly here, fictional filth. It's it's amazing to me that anyone would give credence to a religion that focuses its heavenly reward on sex. And two of the three that I mention here do just that. The reward of religion is where true Islam, as taught faithfully from the Quran, believes that heaven is a place where Muslim men are given limitless wine, food, young servant boys, and 72 virgin women for their endless pleasure. Really? That's their heaven. In this Muslim concept of heaven, men are forever young, they're 90 feet tall, because they believe Adam was 90 feet tall, and sexually active for all eternity. Of course this is man's reward. You want to know what the woman's reward is? You want to know what she receives? A faithful Muslim woman is simply reunited with her husband as her reward. Oh, that's nice. And, and all of this is determined by their works and their, the desire of their God, which is why they have absolutely no assurance of their eternity. They go or supposedly don't go to heaven based upon the whim of their God. They have the question, did they please him? Did they please their God? And the quickest and surest way for a Muslim to please him is to die in a holy struggle, a jihad. We could go off on that. But next here, Mormonism. Mormonism is quite similar. Yes, I just said that. In that the reward of every Mormon man is to become a God where he will rule his own planet... And populate it himself. This is what they believe concerning the afterlife. The woman's reward. Here's the woman's reward. She will be kept pregnant for eternity, producing spirit offspring. I am not making this stuff up. They are. They're making this up. I mean, this is offensive. We see in God's word that every man and woman is made in the image of God. They have equal spiritual value. Equal value. You know, in Mormonism, up until 1978, only the white man could achieve their form of godhood. Changed in 1978. Bottom line, Mormons, originally known as Latter-day Saints, hold to an unsavable system. In fact, they all do. And I have to say, I I know some very kind individuals who are Mormon. They they are sweet people. But they have the wrong Jesus. And they depart from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means that they are lost in a man-made system. Religion that believes its reward of pleasure, regardless of how absurd that reward may be, is based upon their own works. Yes, it's, it's true. We could get into this. Muslims and Mormons both believe in a form of heaven and hell, although it is, again, ABC. It's anything but Christian. But let's move on here to Jehovah's Witnesses. They make this list too, in that they believe in some form of heavenly reward based upon their own efforts. They are working their way to their own tale of heaven. You know, at one time... The Watchtower Society, their doctrine, originally stated there was room only for 144,000 anointed. They take this from uh, Revelation 7 and 14. But they had a big problem with this because their religion, their cult, grew immensely. So they had to make changes over years to accommodate the 144 plus thousand. I mean, they couldn't say 144,000 anymore. Their members exceeded that. In this system, you are also working your way to heaven with tests in this life and supposedly the one to come. And personally speaking, let me just say this. You know, Of the six religions, I believe this one to be the most devious. Hear me on this. I believe it to be the most devious. As many of you, I think you know this, if you interact with some Jehovah's Witnesses who visit you it will require your utmost biblical discernment when speaking with them. They are literally being trained to deceive. They are deceived and they are deceiving others. I'm not mincing words here. What does this all have to do with the question, what happens to us after we die? Well, we want you to be equipped with the truth of God's word concerning heaven. Not some man-made system of rewards or, or reincarnation. Equipped with Scripture as a a true believer, a member of God's church, and to be encouraged by it, to know what is real and what is not. Not some pretend results and, and some kind of phony rewards that are promised there, which leads us here to number three, and the only truthful answer to this question. Number three here is the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection. Reality meaning it's a fact. It's, it's a certainty. Whether you believe it or not, it is still the truth. Nothing is left to chance. Nothing is happenstance or luck. No what ifs. Perhaps it's true or hopefully it will happen. The reality of the resurrection, it changes everything. Everything. And you can place an X over those answers number, number one and number two there. Because they fail. You can cross them right out. They are false religions, which really is an oxymoron, isn't it? False and man made. Instead, circle number three. Circle number three Christianity is much more than a, a worldview or a way of looking at life. Ultimately, it is a living hope with an eternal inheritance, which begins with Christ which begins with Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ matters as it relates to heaven because our greatest enemy, death, had to be defeated. Only in Christianity do we learn the reality that God became a man, that he died for our sins and rose bodily from the grave to conquer death for us. Through the resurrection, Jesus conquered the grave, giving mankind a living hope for life beyond the grave. Christ rose to validate his claims that he is God, Savior, and Messiah. Christ rose to fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies. He rose to demonstrate that God the Father has counted the Son's sacrifice as a worthy offering and acceptable payment for the sins of those who believe. And it is in his resurrection that Christianity is confirmed. It is true. According to the uh, Apostle Paul, if Jesus had not risen, then Christianity is just another empty belief system. We, we would still be dead in our sins. And any proclamation of the gospel would be a complete waste of time because in Christ is the hope, the fact, the promised reality of heaven. It's a divine accomplishment as opposed to a human, a failed human effort but there is uh more to the reality of the resurrection because of because of the resurrection we can be born again you see in your bulletin this morning spiritually we can be born again spiritually it's the same holy spirit the same resurrection power that causes us to be born again spiritually just listen to ephesians 1 verses 19 and 20 here we're going to get to john 14 What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might with which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And this resurrection power that causes us to be born again is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2. 4-11, So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Moreover, this is not just about a spiritual resurrection from death to life. It's also physical in the life to come. Physically, The risen Christ is the guarantee that believers will be raised from the dead too. Christ is the first fruits of a physical resurrection. Look, if if Christ is not risen, then the church won't be raised. Yet Christ did, in fact, emerge from the tomb alive. He made heaven, eternal life, a reality. That is the reality of the resurrection. Well, that's a long intro. But it brings us to our passage in John 14 this morning. I'm assuming you're there, John 14. We're just going to read verses 1 through 3 here, and then we're going to answer question number 2. It says here, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Question number two. What will heaven be like for us? We are seeking to answer this because heaven is closer than ever before. And we want to use five statements to help us consider Christ's words here to his disciples. Five statements with the first one being, there is no heaven without Christ. There is no heaven without Christ. And I'm using this in a variety of ways. First, in in verse 1, we see Jesus saying, he's declaring his divinity. Believe in God, believe also in me. He is placing himself, once again, on par with the Father. The New King James, I I prefer this translation of this verse. It reads, you believe in God, therefore, believe also in me. You believe God, therefore, believe also in me. The issue is trust, to trust what Christ, the Son of God, is, is saying and doing. Imagine you are one of Jesus' disciples, and you were there when Jesus changed the water into wine at the wedding. You were there when Jesus healed the paralytic man by the pool. You were there when, when Jesus fed thousands with, with five loaves of bread and a few fish. You were there in the boat that night on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus as he walked on water. You were there when Jesus gave sight to a man who had been born blind. You were there when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And you know what? He did. He came out. So when you hear his words to believe in him, in the same manner as you believe in God, it should not come as a surprise to believe in him, he has demonstrated nothing less. But then we have those words, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. The last few days were an emotional mess for these disciples. As they, they heard Jesus announce his death in John 13, Just page over, take a look at this with me. John 13, 33. Where he says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me as I said to the Jews. Now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. The disciples, they they had left everything to follow Jesus. Now Jesus is apparently leaving them. And that is the point. Literally, point number one. There is no heaven without Christ. Jesus would leave them, not permanently, but to prepare a place for them, to prepare a place for them. And there's, there's also a theological meaning behind this too. In Old Testament times, God had instructed his people, the Israelites, to perform animal sacrifices, and, and they were required to do so regularly and with specific instructions on the kind of animal and procedures involved. However, it is important to note that these sacrifices, they did not pay for their sins against God. Hebrews 10.4 makes this clear. You know this verse. It says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So then, why would God have required them? Why would he have required those animal sacrifices? How could God receive this kind of payment and forgive the Old Testament believers of their sins when he clearly states that it would not clear them of their debt? The answer is absolutely astonishing. And it brings us to Jesus. There would be no heaven without Christ. He is the one and only sacrifice that could actually atone, pay, for our sin. You see, the effectiveness of those Old Testament animal sacrifices, they rested not in themselves, but in what they were pointing to. They were placing their trust, their faith, in what was promised to come. The, the greater sacrifice that was to come. That is the Lamb of God whom the Father would offer for his people. The animal sacrifices of old were pointed. They were connected to the divine plan of God the Father. And he wholly offered his son as the one and only sacrifice that could actually atone for sin. Their faith in that payment by God at a future time is what saved them. Let me read for you a a very helpful illustration of this point from uh, Dr. Bruce Ware of southern seminary we've had uh we we had the privilege of having bruce Ware here for uh at a grace life getaway a number of years ago and i highly recommend his book the the man christ jesus the man christ jesus and in it he writes this illustration he writes consider what happens when you buy something with a credit card suppose that you're in the mall and you find some shoes you like you can take those shoes up to the register, charge them to your credit card, and walk out of that store with your new shoes, having paid absolutely nothing for them. Why is this not shoplifting? Why are you not stopped at the door by the security guard and charged with stealing? You are free to leave with the shoes because you have entered into a legal transaction whereby you have obligated yourself to a future payment by which you and others may now consider those shoes as your own. Even though you have not paid a penny for them, you have tied yourself legally to an agreement. That's what you've done, by the way, when you sign the credit card slip. By which those shoes will be paid by you at some agreed upon date in the future. So while the shoes are legally yours, they are only paid for when the credit card statement comes and a payment is made from your bank account. In a similar way, God forgave the sin of all Old Testament saints as if it were on credit. He devised a system of sacrifices by which each of those animal sacrifices would signal his obligation at some point in the future to ensure that the payment for those sins would surely and truly be made apart from that future payment where, says, those animal sacrifices were totally useless. There would be no heaven without Christ. Where concludes, The credit card statement has come. The check is written. The payment accepted. This is what God has done in the offering of his son who alone could make the payment in full for our sin. The church cannot rest on the assurance of heaven without Christ. He, he has made that payment in full. Christ did it. It's Christ who did it. And it is your faith, your belief in him that will prevent your heart from truly being troubled. There is no greater comfort for the believer. Heaven will be heaven because Jesus is there. Hear me on this. Heaven will be heaven because Jesus is there. There is no heaven without Christ. What makes heaven heaven is that the glorified, risen Christ is there. Number two here. Heaven is a prepared place for us. Heaven is a prepared place for us. In verse 2, Jesus tells us, his, he tells them his purpose in leaving in that end of verse 2. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, This is a real place to be occupied by people. Heaven. You may notice that in your bulletin, I've, I've uh, capitalized the letter H. He- heaven is a, a distinct place that is pre- being prepared for us. If it were not so, Jesus says, I would have told you. He's telling them the truth. Always has. In fact, Jesus is the truth verse six you see that now if you're wondering why i keep using the word heaven when you see absolutely no mention of it here it is because that is what is being referenced when jesus says at the beginning of verse two in my father's house are many dwelling places he's not talking about apartments As I said earlier, mansions is a a different translation, really not the best translation of the Greek word here, which literally means dwellings. The idea is the Father's house, heaven, is vast with rooms for all, unlike the the predicament of the Jehovah's Witnesses and their 144,000 limit. In the book of Hebrews, we see heaven described both as a a country in 1116 and a huge city in 1222. Because. Both are large enough. To encompass. All who believe. There's plenty of room. There'll be room for. All whom God in his great love. Has chosen to redeem. Heaven is a prepared. Place for us. Heaven. You know it's, it's referenced some. 550 times in scripture. It's a very real place. We're just passing through this life in this world until we are home in heaven where all of heavenly reality becomes just that for us. And when we arrive there, we will find that we were known and thought of before we ever appeared on the scene. That's encouraging as well. If you want to have a little homework here, you'd do well to to sometime either later today or this week, coming week, read Revelation chapter 21. Uh, You'll find many specific references to just what is promised to us specifically in the Father's house. And I I need to make a a quick mention here as well in verse 3 about another promise that is made. I I preached specifically on this verse back in um, January of 2021. This is not speaking of his second coming and kingdom reign upon earth. It, it can't be. It can't be because he's not promising here to come back to earth. This is a rapture reference in that Jesus is promising that there will be a day when he will take his believers home to heaven, not to earth. Not to earth. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself. To myself that where I am, there you may be also. Where is he right now? Where, where did he ascend to? Heaven. The second coming is Jesus' arrival to planet earth, so it can't be a reference to that. No. Here, he, he doesn't come to earth. We go to heaven. What verse 3 is referring to is, is a taking, a, a rapture of the church to heaven. We are are going to the Father's house, to the place He has been preparing for us. And that's the next event on God's prophetic calendar. Heaven is a prepared place for us. Moreover, number three here, heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. Prepared people. That's because, honestly, we don't don't fit in here on planet Earth. In Paul's words are, our citizenship is in heaven. People keep talking about aliens. You know this? I mean, they, they keep talking about, I, I think they're here and I believe there are aliens among us. Well, sir, you are correct. Truth be told, we are the aliens. We are the strangers. We do not belong here. Heaven is our home. And only those who are in Christ can be deemed prepared a prepared people. We long, we anticipate the day when we will have sinless bodies that will be able to behold his glory and to to be in awe of the, the supreme majesty that belongs to him alone as a prepared people. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, uses the same terminology. He writes, he who prepared us for this very purpose Is God. To the Philippians, he added, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. To the Romans, he declared, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul later, in that same letter to the Romans, adds, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of. To be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Believer, be of courage. Be encouraged with what awaits you one day. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are going to behold his glory. You're going to be prepared to take all of heaven in. And I can't wait. Not just to be there in a, prepared state with my savior but also because there are countless people that i am waiting to see do you have your list i mean other than jesus who from the bible would you like to meet let's think about that for a moment who are you going to be waiting to see i have many men many women on that list peter james john sarah hannah uh esther list goes on and on. And then add those from church history. Polycarp, Charles Bridges, Jonathan Edwards. This is my list. And it's a long list, by the way. And then from human history itself. I can't wait to meet them all. But what about friends and family members? What about friends and family members? This gets a little difficult. You know, I, I have them too. And the problem is, I'm not sure that some of them are going to really be there. I hope that they are there. What a terrible thing to think, isn't it? I I think he'll be there, but I'm not really sure. And I challenge you in this way. Don't leave doubt as a legacy. Don't leave doubt as a legacy. I'm assured of my salvation. Are you assured of yours? If I die today, I'm not here. I'm with the Lord. We need to be not only confident about that, but we need to share that with our families. Don't leave doubt as a legacy. Don't hide your light, as Jesus says in Matthew 5. Shine it all for for, for all to see. Make it known. One of the worst things that we can be thinking is, I, I wonder if I'll see them. I wonder if they'll be there. No, I know he'll be there. No, I know she'll be there because God's promises are sure. If it weren't true, Jesus would have told us. He would have told us. And I know that he's a true believer in Christ. I know he's placed his faith in Christ alone or she has. I know they're going to be there and I cannot wait for that day. Number one, there's no heaven without Christ. Number two, heaven is a prepared place for us. Number three, heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And number four here, heaven is full of good negatives. Good negatives. This would make for an interesting study in and of itself a list of the good negatives found in heaven. Do you know what I mean? Here's one. Here's an example of one that's a good negative that is found in heaven no more sorrow. No more sorrow. How much sorrow are you still holding in your heart? I mean, if you dwell on that sorrow, you'll probably produce tears. But in heaven, there's no more sorrow. There will be none. It's a good negative. Here's another. No more pain. No more pain. Most of you in here get that one, yes? No more pain in heaven. That's a good negative. How about this one? No more curse. There'll be no more curse. I can't wait to get that curse-free coffee. You know what I'm talking about? If you enjoy your coffee right now, can you imagine coffee without the fall? Curse-free coffee on the other side. But seriously, think of everything that has been tainted by the curse that will be no more. Creation. Our own flesh. Our relationships. The roles that we have established. You know, it's a result of the fall. No more curse. No more. It will all change because of this good negative. No more curse or even cursing. Okay, one more. Although this is not even close to an exhaustive list. No more death. Praise God. No more death. Heaven is full of good negatives. Yes. Good negatives. But more importantly, most importantly, really, before we pray, let me give you number five. Number five. There is no entrance into heaven without Christ. There is no entrance into heaven without Christ. Let us always remember there is no way to heaven apart from Jesus. Look at verse 6. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father. No one enters but through Jesus. You can't go to heaven without Jesus. And you can't get to Jesus without repenting of your sin and believing in him for your salvation. It's faith alone, Christ alone. In faith alone, in Christ alone. This is what is necessary for salvation. We need someone, capital S, to live in our place and die in our place. To, to live in our place, to meet all the requirements of the law, to fulfill all Righteousness and for someone to die in our place, bearing our sins upon the cross. That is the the heart of the gospel message. Christ came into this world to lay down his life for his sheep, that he would purchase the church with his own blood. And if you die unconverted without repenting and believing you will have a terrible place in hell just as there are degrees of honor in heaven there are various degrees of misery and torment in hell imagine the one who is sitting here in god's house this morning who has the privilege of hearing the promise of heaven in the church but never becoming a part of Of the church. To have have heard the truth seated in his house and yet to not embrace it, not embrace him in repentance and faith, well, I'd argue that would be a degree of hell in and of itself. Your future and eternity hinge on how you respond to Christ. As Jesus declared in John 8, 24, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. These are sobering words offered to you out of an authentic and a loving concern for your very soul today. Are you ready for heaven? Get ready for heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time together, gathered together to ascribe worth to you, to worship you in song, in the reading of your word, in prayer, and in the preaching of your word. And as we have considered both biblically what happens when we die and and what will heaven be like, I, I pray that these truths would breathe confidence into every believers heart here in this day may we remain strong in your grace regardless of uh, what we may face whether it's today or should you tarry tomorrow let us hold to the truth that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us we long for heaven and father While it's easy to assume with the word us, we mean every believer in here. We do recognize there are those in here who are not yet ready for heaven. They have not placed their faith alone in you for the forgiveness of their sins. And we pray this would be the day, Lord, that you would open your eyes, you would draw them near, you would uh, encourage them with the joy, the promise of knowing you in heaven. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.